Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. This is the China Sports Insider Podcast. I am Hike Ballion, and I am with Mark Dreyer. He is the China Sports Insider and the author of Sporting Superpower, an insider's view on China's quest to be the best. Mark, you are not in China. I saw your video from uh, Capital Airport in Beijing, and I think you were on one of the only flights that leaves Beijing right now. That's right. Uh, I flew out. I'm actually in uh, Taiwan right now. Um, reuniting with my family after seven days of quarantine. So I'm still <laughs> coming to you from the hotel at the moment. Yeah, there were three flights uh, that I could see that were departing uh, Capital Airport Terminal 3, the, the, the big international terminal, all day on Tuesday. Uh, you know, it, it was just, it feels like yesterday that, that Beijing was, if not the largest, the busiest airport in the world, certainly top three. And it was just eerie. It really was. It was a ghost town. Everything was closed. On my flight, there were 30 passengers. I think we had 15 crew and a, and a flight that could hold, uh, you know, well over 300, they told me. Passengers. So, yeah, that was it. So I don't know how they're keeping these, uh, keeping these, these uh, routes alive, but um, they are for the moment. But yeah, it does feel, you know, uh, not, not in any way trying to um, gloat, high, having, having <laughs> left, you, left you behind, but, you know, it, it does sort of feel like I... I kind of <laughs> escaped at that at just the right time with yeah. I saw news today that you know there's there's no taxis now basically yeah. and and uh, they're not quite calling it a lockdown but effectively every measure is you can't you know you got to work from home you can't use the subways you can't go on there's no other other options for transports so it's it's a lockdown in in all but name it seems to me how how's it feel for you yeah, if you'd asked me a year ago, or rather, if you told me a year ago that this is the situation we'd be in right now, I wouldn't believe you. This is this is bizarre. Uh, it's really bizarre. I mean, w- Beijing hasn't really gotten to where Shanghai has been over the last, you know, whatever, 40, 50 days. You know, but in, anywhere else in the world, you'd be calling this a lockdown. As you said, you know, subways are closed. You can't take a DD. Work, no one's been going to work. No one's been going to uh, to school. And I guess the question is, like, what is the end game? What's when when do we get out of this? And I think it's a question that a lot of people are asking, not just in China, but but, you know, elsewhere around the world as well. Um, and so that's something we're going to be talking about a little bit later on when we talk about the postponement of the Asian Games, which, you know, news which dropped uh, this week. But yeah, just, you know, Mark, it just feels weird. I don't, I don't know how else to put it. That's not the best. 
<laughs> That's the right way to say it. Like it just it's strange. Well, you know, bringing it back to bringing back to the sports industry here, it's just absolutely created over the last um well, year, two years really. And and I think the most frustrating thing for me is that China should be killing it right now. It should right. be you know, it should be riding the 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 wave from the Olympics, from from all the other uh, uh, domestic sports, uh, you know, sports waves that we've had here in terms of the growth of the industry. Um, and unfortunately, there's no light at the end of the tunnel just now. It, it looks like you know, COVID zero is very much going to stay in place at least until the end of this year. Yeah, and then maybe they start to change the narrative. But again, we all talk about this. Um, because it more in hope rather than expectation. Every timeline that I've ever heard about China opening up has always <laughs> underestimated it and uh, continues to do so. It's it's um it is tough. It's tough um, if you're an international property, if you're a team, if you're a brand, if you're domestic. You know the Chinese Super League is about to start, and once again there will be no fans. And you just have to think, what is the point? What is the point what in is playing the point? these games that that no one's watching? You know, Mark, last last year, I guess it was just going back to that timeline point that you just made. Everyone was talking about after the Olympics, after the Winter Olympics, things are going to be opening up. And then now what I'm hearing is after the October sessions, you know, things are going to be opening up. I don't like may, maybe, but, I, you know, somebody once said, like, hope is not a plan. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. Last week, we talked about the possibility of major postponements in China and some big news has been dropping pretty much throughout the last week. The Asian Games in Hangzhou not happening in 2022. What's the news? Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, we talked about the the World University Games. Uh, basically, uh, that had been discussed for for uh, just about a week beforehand, before the official announcement. It was just kind of a botched announcement as well, when everyone's mm. talking about it and no one really seems to know and everyone's yeah. asking questions. And then on the same day, the Asian Games were canceled. Now, you know, we've talked about this before, and uh, again, not taking credit for the uh, for for the cancellation, but I did. Uh, you know, with my little humble brag here, did predict <laughs> it at the end of last year on the show here on the China Sports Insider podcast that there would be one international sporting event taking place in China in the whole of 2022, the Winter Olympics. Uh, they have happened; they've come and gone, and it looks like uh, there aren't going to be anything anything else, unfortunately. Now. For China, you know, at least for us um, here, this wasn't a surprise. But I was on a podcast just the other day with um, with an Indian journalist, um, and they were sort of thinking, "But it's the Asian Games, surely? China, you know, a huge priority for them. You know, how on earth have, have they cancelled this? They can show that they can hold a pandemic uh, multi sports event. You know, they can just do it again." And for me, the big difference here, I think there's there's uh, there's a logistical difference in that people might not realize, but but both the Asian Games and the University Games are, in terms of athletes, four times the size of the Winter Olympics. So logistically, that's a, a much larger challenge. Now, again, they're not in Beijing, which has seen uh, better restrictions, a better control of the pandemic throughout Hangzhou, where the Asian Games were due to be held, as had had some outbreaks. So that was a, as another big thing. But I think overall, beyond all of that, is it just simply wasn't as big a political priority as the Winter Olympics. The Winter Olympics were going to be held in China in 2022 at the original time, no matter what. Uh, and, they, and they managed to do it. And we have to say, you know, it was a fantastic logistical achievement. Without a doubt. Um, yes, there were, there were basically, you know, almost no spectators, and that was a shame. But uh, it was largely held without a hitch. And you have to give the, organization, uh, the organizers huge credit for that. 
But the Asian Games, you know, it's it's significantly down the pecking order when it comes to political priorities. And right now in China, as anyone who is 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 following any kind of China news, there's only one priority, and that is the pandemic and COVID zero. And so everything else basically just gets scrapped. The economy is, you know, shot to pieces right now. Who knows what the data is going to be and 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 how trustworthy perhaps those numbers are going to be over the next few months. But just to kind of sum this up, you know, the, the three strands of, of politics and business and sports that, that are kind of interwoven right now, forget the business and certainly forget the sports. Uh, it's all about the politics. But OK, so 2023, though, is that realistic for any of these events? Could that could that even possibly happen? So I, I got two things to say on this. Number one, we're getting to the point where it sort of feels, you know, like the, the boy who cried wolf. It will be like, oh, well, it'll be next year. And, and you know, the, the, the university games were already postponed from 2021 to 2022. And now we're saying 2023. When have we ever seen any of these timelines? With the exception of the Winter Olympics, when have we ever seen any of these timelines um, uh, held to? And I think the second point is, and, and, and a, a question that I've been asking over the last week is, at what point... Do international sporting federations and bodies who award these games say to China, no, no, I'm sorry, COVID is not an excuse. You can't say we can't hold these games because of the pandemic. We're going to strip these games from you. And, you know, there's no other way to say it. They would be stripping the games from China or the Asian Cup. We talked about the big uh, uh, soccer tournament with 24 teams across 10 cities supposed to be in just over one year from now. Um you know, at what point do, do these organizations say, I'm sorry, you can't keep using COVID as an excuse. It's no longer an excuse. The rest of the world has moved on. It's complicated because China is deeply embedded into many of these organizations, both financially and, you know, with the, with the size of the market. Of course, China wants to do everything it can to hold these games. And, and of course, the organizers, the sporting bodies who are dealing with the Asian Federation and so on, they are desperately trying to hold these games. The The Asian Games organizers would have wanted to go ahead for sure. But, you know, politically, they don't get a choice. All right, let's let's move on, Mark. Uh, we need to talk about this because we've had on a couple of guests recently who didn't have the greatest experience with China's hockey teams. But China's hockey teams, both the men and the women, have, have been having some pretty good results recently. What, what's going on? Referring there, of course, to Rudy Ng, who recently became our yes. most listened podcast ever uh he was just fantastic and and i think we're going to get rudy on again for those of you who enjoyed him he's uh told us he has plenty more to say so uh uh look forward to that in in the weeks ahead but yes so the world championships is if if you're not familiar with international ice hockey uh you might be hearing that the 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 world championships uh the top men's division is upcoming but it's sort of like a davis cup so there's different divisions that apply they have the top division and then division one, which is divided into group A and group B uh, and, and division two and so on. And both the Chinese men's and women's team uh, have got promotion. So if we look uh, at the men's uh, tournament, they were in division two A and they absolutely blitzed their division. They beat the Netherlands, Croatia, Spain and Israel scoring 28 goals and only conceding four so they have gone up to Division 1B for next year, which is a fantastic achievement. Uh, meanwhile, just a few weeks ahead of that, uh, the women's team did something similar. Uh, they won promotion to Division 1A for next year, beating Poland, Italy, Kazakhstan, and South Korea. Again, massive goal differential of plus 29 over their five games. And I think that the interesting point wow. here is that 
I was I was sort of expecting to a certain extent a lot of these heritage players, the North American recruits, both on the men's and the women's, would come in for the Olympics and then they just kind of disappear and, and go. But they very much kept the bulk of the squad together. So we're seeing these heritage players uh, at top of the scoring charts in both the men's and the women's. And it's great to see because I think certainly to, to keep that consistency as some of the Chinese players uh, improve and, and gradually take over to, to more of a domestic emphasis on the, on the ice hockey front, uh, you, you need some of that continuity. So it's good to see the heritage players still you know, supporting Team China and, 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 playing and, and playing so well winning promotion both in the men's and the women's, and hopefully that will continue next year where they'll make further strides, but also it'd be good to get more homegrown Chinese players in those squads as well. So Mark, let's let's move on to our interview with Ting. First of all, how did you meet Ting? Who, who is she? Jiang Ting is, uh, she, she's just one of those people that I've come to know over the years and, and extremely knowledgeable of about, about the sports industry uh, and really all sports, because I think you know, she worked for a sports recruitment firm. Um, SRI is kind of known as a leader in sports recruitment globally, and she was heading up the China division, um, placing some really senior executives in some of the top international brands here, uh, and and of course working with with a lot of a lot of those uh, sports properties too. So she's worked with clubs and leagues, and and very very well connected. But more than that, just incredibly smart, uh, and has some fan- fascinating insights. Uh, which she was uh, generous enough to share with us when we spoke to her a little bit earlier. Yeah, we talked about women in sport. We talked about how China can come back from from COVID. A lot of the things that we've talked about today, Mark, definitely stick around for that interview. Uh, I think it was really great. So here is Zhang Ting. Ting, uh, good morning. Uh, we're uh, recording this in the morning and you're in Shanghai into your second month of lockdown. How are you doing there? Um, I'm I'm holding up pretty well so far. But actually, I went through a sort of period, right? Um, at the beginning of the lockdown, I was super depressed because you were not, you were told it was only like four days or five days. And then the days kept adding up uh, and then you feel there was no end. So I was super frustrated. And then as time went by, you started building your own routine um, in your apartment. So I can do some home workouts and cook for myself. So things are getting better, and we are we're hoping this is going to end soon. Yeah, fingers crossed. So, so let's just take a kind of a longer term view of the sports industry with your kind of you know decade plus experience. You know, uh, uh, mixing with with senior executives from from across all sports as well as your current role with UFC. Like, how does China? How does the how does the Chinese sports industry emerge from COVID, and when will it emerge from COVID? I think it's 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 definitely a big topic, and what we have seen so far uh, is outside of China, things are very much back to normal, right? Uh, we talk about Singapore, we talk about uh, US, um, everything is you know is recovered, but China after two years, we still have this sort of COVID zero policy, and that put a stop to a lot of things. Um, so I think in the short term, we are, we're still facing a lot of challenges of the sports industry as a whole because the live events are, you know, pretty much the bread and butter for, for all the businesses here, right? And without any live events, it's very hard to uh, conduct a business. And also people have to travel a lot. I think at the moment I'm stuck at home and not being able to travel. That's a big thing. And I think... This also puts a lot of long-term effect in terms of how you actually plan your your things in China in future. 
because of all this uncertainty, to be honest. So I guess with that international events or professional events, it's going to be hard. Uh, any big live events happening in China, we, we, we just can't do that simply. But I think on the other side, uh, I don't know whether this is what COVID brings to us is the, the fitness uh, industry as a whole. I think the mass on the mass participation level, like home home fitness or general sort of gym business, it's actually growing. Um, and you guys probably see either in Beijing, Shanghai, we see so many fitness brands coming up and they're opening new stores. I think in terms of mass level, it's growing. So I look at this, you know, from two angles. One is probably more on a stop mode. Uh, the other is quite a booming in China. When you say uh, fitness brands, do you mean brands like CrossFit, F45, that, that kind of thing? One of, one of that is the gym brands, as you mentioned. And the other is just the retail brands like Lululemon um, or some other fitness like apparel brands. Like even with Nike, I think the business is going back up again. Uh, and we see a lot of growing Chinese fitness brands coming up as well. Uh, so there are two sides of the business I'm seeing growing here in China. Yeah, You mentioned a couple of uh, Western brands there. How do you see more generally the the rise of Chinese sportswear brands. Um, do you think it's a competition? Do you think consumers are, are picking one versus the other based on sort of nationalist reasons or, or maybe want to, people who are more internationally minded or it's just it's just a market with more brands these days? I think one of the reason is because the whole industry is booming and a lot of entrepreneurs see the opportunities, right? And I think that's that's just how, how all these uh, business starters look at the business um, opportunities here. China has a long history of this sort of manufacturing uh, for foreign brands in the past. So they they actually can create the supply chain pretty easily with all the existing resources. It's really about they put a brand together and try to build the brand story around it. So it's almost all the infrastructure is there. Uh, and then the, the business, the industry uh, starts booming up. They can easily start the brand. And the other thing you mentioned is, you know, it's really about no matter politically, China is promoting all the economy domestically. Um, and and also that sort of nationalism, the passion point for a lot of young, growing uh, Chinese consumers. Um, it's kind of, you know, they have all the packages together. And that's why we see so many Chinese brands coming up. And they're doing great. They spend so much money on promoting uh, with different KOLs, uh, and the price is pretty good. Uh, so they create a lot of competition to to the foreign brands like Nike, Adidas. And I've, I don't think Adidas is doing pretty well here in China. Uh, Reebok is kind of gone. So that's, you know, that's just how, how the market consumers all the products at the moment. J- just on that for a, for a second, do you see it continuing to be kind of a, you know, a wide spread of brands in the future? Do you think Chinese brands are going to um, solidly overtake international brands here? If we talk about Chinese uh, fitness brands in general, I would say the only good ones will survive. That means, you know, they have the solid product and they have very, very good and long established brand strategy. Um, I think in the past two or three years, we see many brands, they talk about, you know, they, they, they come up because of the cheaper price, they come up because of all the marketing spending, but how sustainable that is, right? That's always a problem. And that's always a challenge. 
So I think probably in the next one or two years, we will see what good ones stand out and what good ones can actually long, last long in the market. And I think with the international brands, uh, it's kind of the landscape is kind of set already. And I don't see many sort of opportunities for new brands to come in and become another Nike or become another Lululemon. You know, it's pretty much the big players already in the market. It's kind of, you know, the, the domestic brand landscape is still shaping and the international ones are very much established already. You know, on, on a smaller scale, Ting, like I've, I've been writing a story uh, over the last week about this incredible rise of ultimate Frisbee, of ultimate disc, in, in, in specifically in Shanghai and, and uh, Beijing. And it's and it's amazing because like I've been playing Ultimate Disc for decades, but it's so different here. And these brands, like you know, relatively new brands, have been um, you know working with KOLs or influencers, you know, just sort of creating this brand new market. It seems for all this apparel. So I'm, I was just sort of wondering, like, is that sort of the opportunity for smaller brands to sort of get an in here, like with with newer sports? I think as you know, as we can see, uh, when more people participate in sports. Uh, doing fitness, um, you know, there will be niche sport coming up. So it's not about Fisbee. We we see so many people skate here in China and events business has grown so much in the past few years. And I do see the niche sport will emerge from, you know, from the Chinese, uh, let's say Chinese sports fans. And also it's about, it's linked to the social let's say, social uh, definition, like what sports you play would still play a role in defining yourself. So I guess that's another thing we could look at uh, in terms of the develop- potential development of the niche sport. I would say the other sort of opportunity for niche sport is it could easily build up a community and the loyalty of that community could be maintained pretty well. I mean, personally, I have started doing all the CrossFit um, although there's a growing number of people doing CrossFit nowadays in China, but compared to the large portion of the population, it's a very, very small community. But when you actually get into that community, uh, it's a whole package, right? You can meet friends, you can do the community events, you have a common interest to share, and then you start actually buying all the stuff together. So it's like, you know, it's that community element which drives a niche sport to develop in China. But I think with the football and uh, uh, basketball, these mainstream sports, because it's already huge and it's not, you know, it's it's not easy for you to find an identity there, which is, you know, which yeah. can differentiate yourself from other people. Ting, I wanted to get your thoughts. You know, we look at COVID as, as sort of destroying the sports industry because of, you know, the lack of live events and the lack of international sports events. Do you think there's any positives that we can take from it? Uh, Two things that, that perhaps, you know, if people stuck at home, there's more of this kind of, you know, self-fitness and self-drive and motivation. Uh, we, we noticed with winter sports over the last couple of years, instead of people traveling outside of China, they're going to Chinese ski slopes and, and discovering new resorts. Do you think these things are just a coincidence and they've developed in parallel? Or do you think COVID, in some sense, has actually been responsible for developing more domestic elements? I think it's, it's kind of yes and a no answer to me. Organically, when... When COVID becomes a norm, I would say like in the past two years, people start to figure out things and and try to find the silver lining. So that's why I think now if we look at skiing, a lot of people go like after the Winter Olympics, a lot of people go and skiing and uh, and try to develop 
the sort of domestic sports businesses. That's that's good, and that creates a lot of opportunities for people to look at what resources we actually have within China. You know, instead of like seeking always looking out China to to find some other alternative ones. So to a certain extent, it's kind of something you are forced to develop. That's always good. But on the other side, I just feel in if we look at the performance of the sport. Uh, for all different kinds of sports, China is still very much underdeveloped, right? And if we talk about coaches here in China across all different sports, like basketball coaches or football coaches or you know even just fitness coaches, uh, there's still very much a lack of good quality of good coaches in China, and these are the people who gonna train the talent, no matter on the mass level or on the elite level. Um, so it's gonna definitely affect. Uh, play probably a more negative effect on the athlete's performance development. Just giving example, Zhang Weili, our our ex champion uh, in China, you know she has been trying so hard to get good coaches from the U.S. or South Asia to train on the Muay Thai or Jiu Jitsu or even just strength and conditioning. But with all the COVID restrictions, she just couldn't, you know, get people out of here to support her camps. Uh, and that's gonna definitely affect her performance within the UFC. And we see a lot of our UFC fighters that travel to the US to do the camps there instead of within China. I think there's there's a bright side um, for us to look at. You know, Chinese Chinese talent would try to utilize and explore the new resources in China. That's gonna help with the domestic development. But on the other side, the talent performance will be. Largely, sort of impacted. Yeah, still, uh, I guess, uh, far more negatives than positives. You know, I try always trying to look at the positive side, but but yeah, you're right. So, so you know, a, a good transition there to to, to UFC and Jiang Weili, of course, that you mentioned. Um, China's for sure most famous MMA fighter thus far. Um, just tell us a little bit about your involvement in UFC and 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 what you're responsible for here, uh, based out of Shanghai. My role at the UFC started about two and a half years ago, and I joined predominantly to take care of the sponsorship acquisition for UFC in Asia,、uh, which is more about monetizing the brand, like from securing the marketing partnership and sponsorships from the brands in Asia. As you mentioned, you know Zhang Weili was a very she actually is a big name for us in China, and she helped a lot with the. With the UFC's awareness in China,、um, and that helps us drive the business in the region. And related to this, my role is also looking at securing Asian brands to become the UFC global partners.、Uh, so that means like big, big brands that's coming out of China but doing business globally. We also need to look at that as potential sponsors for UFC. So that's that's what my role is about here in UFC. What what are some of the 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 challenges that you faced in that role? I know you know there's 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 been stories not not just here but kind of you know there's there's obviously there's there's different factions there's the brand but then a lot of the fighters themselves are trying to trying to develop their own personal brands rather than you know the the UFC brand you know that and that's not necessarily specific to China you know what what are some of the things that that、uh, you know the the challenges as well as the opportunities? Yeah, you're right. I think. I think from the macro、uh, perspective, if we talk about sponsorship,、uh, the challenges towards the sports marketing or sponsorship in China is really about, you know, the brand decision makers' understanding of sponsorship. 
like I think we had a lot of talkings in the past in the industry about like the the rights holders have to educate so much on brand owners about how they should properly invest in sports marketing, the value of the sports marketing and the sponsorship to their brands. So that has been, I think, consistently a challenge here. And I think one particular point, challenging point is how are you looking at a long-term or just short-term return, right? And everybody talks about with the sponsorship, it's going to be long-term investment. You need to put a lot of money in, but also you need to utilize that well. So that's actually a really challenge for a lot of brands here in China. Um, and I think talking from the ma- micro perspective in the UFC context, you touched on that a little bit. Like the brand, we actually need to do a lot of education telling the brands the John Willie, the personal sort of IP is not is not what a UFC owns. So the league brand and the personal brand for individual athletes are completely separate. So when it comes to monetization, you know, there's a lot of discussion around how how we separate these two and how we best utilize the value of different brands. And and when John Willie uh, won that fight and become a superstar. You know, naturally, a lot of people go to her to, you know, secure, let's say, like wanted to develop brand together with her brand, wanted to invest in her. But, you know, that personal brand is completely separate from the UFC brand. So there's a lot of detailed discussion we have to do with her manager, with the brands themselves and some other challenges here. Which, which I think is probably a less of a challenge nowadays compared to two years ago. A lot of people have had a lot of misunderstanding of the UFC brand and also the sport itself. I remember when I joined the UFC, um, a lot of brands I, I was trying to talk to, first of all, they just tried to ask, is that a real fight or it's another WWE you guys are doing? Right. Like a stage of the show. So that's one thing. And the second thing, oh, it's it's super bloody. It's very violent. Like, you know, I can't I can't put my brand associated with your brand. It's like a lot of misunderstanding of the sport. That's more of a challenge, common challenge for a lot of emerging emerging markets for UFC. You know, initially when we went to Middle East or Singapore, a lot of people had that. But it's growing and it's been changed. And I'm glad we we actually see the return of keep educating the fans about the sport. And uh, John Wiley definitely helped a lot. Yeah. So, so when the brands do come to you, or did come to you rather, and said, "Oh, this this just seems too violent for us," like how do you how do you respond to that? It depends, right? I I, I we we use different tools to explain, but the biggest thing I always like to use is the data, uh, in the statistics, right? When you talk about the violent, if that's the first concern, obviously we need to educate them and get them to understand the sport, the way it's conducted, a lot more. I can't just say, okay, there's no blood on the canvas. You know, it's not violent at all visually. You know, that's that's completely a liar. So that's one side of that. The other side, if you really drill down to the violence of the sport, we actually put a lot of statistics together saying there's there was zero death of um, athlete in the UFC fighting history. Um, and we have a lot of support to do uh, all this health check, health insurance for the athletes. And our referees are very much professional. They they stop the fights at the time, uh, very timely. 
and actually boxing causes more death than the MMA fight. So there's a lot of statistics we can put together. Um, but ultimately, when we try to convince brands this is sport that you invest, it's not about I'm trying to, let's say, talk to a talk to a mother and uh, and a kid's brand saying you should invest in us. You know, there's a lot of brand research we also have to put together before approaching them. Um, so there's still a little bit like a brand positioning we need to be clear of, and then we find the right brands. So having said that, you know, we do work with a lot of men, uh, male brands who wanted to be positioned as cutting edge, as, you know, outstanding, very different. Um, and that's already ruled a lot of brands out. Ting, you mentioned about uh, one of your roles is to take Asian brands and and make them global partners for the UFC. Have you had any success specifically with Chinese brands and taking them onto the global stage? We actually work with a lot of mobile gaming brands. If you guys are, are familiar with the industry, China is very, very much ahead in the mobile gaming and the digital media. I said digital media solutions and services uh, businesses far more ahead, ahead of all these big players internationally. So what I, what I have been focusing on the past two years is really connecting and approaching Chinese mobile gaming developers. I mean, big ones you guys know is like Tencent and some also some other upcoming ones. They, they actually publish a lot of games uh, internationally, uh, predominantly in North America and the European markets. And they've been heavily relying on utilizing resources like UFC. So I had a lot of success in that. And it's funny, uh, all these clients are actually in China. Uh, either Beijing or Shanghai, um, they they market U.S. and European markets from the China headquarter. So that's kind of how how my role uh, plays an advantage on because we talk we're talking Chinese, we speak the same language, but we also understand the markets in North America and and um, Europe, and we could formulate that partnership pretty well. Ting, we've covered a lot of ground here. There's a couple of things I just want to get onto, and and we'll talk in a second about the role um, specifically of women within the the Chinese sports industry. But before we get into that, you know, you had uh, just about a decade with with SRI, one of the leading sports recruitment firms. Could talk more generally if 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 someone is looking to to work in the sports industry, you know, what makes what makes a successful candidate? Um, you know, what what are people looking for if if people are looking for advice? And maybe tell us a story about uh, perhaps one that, that didn't go quite so well. <laughs> I'll answer the first part of your question. It's interesting. I mean, it's an interesting topic. And I've personally ob- observed that for, for a long time when I was working for SI. I, I came across a lot of people, uh, especially young people, who initially was uh, their fan to NBA. They were fan to like EPL or, or Chelsea Football Club. Because they were a fan first and then start thinking about, okay, maybe I should get a job in sports, which, which is very, very normal. Um, and I think in China, doing a job in sports is still something new. It's not like a financial industry. It's not like a, a traditional sort of industry job. So whenever you have that idea about working sport, you must be, most likely you're, you're a fan, right? But when when I look at people 
who are working in the sports industry, being a fan is not always a good thing. I, I would sort of break this into two aspects, right? If if you're really passionate about certain brand or certain sort of sport, uh, there are certain jobs you should look at to combine where you can combine your personal interest with the professional sort of role you are doing. So I think a lot of content creation uh, roles, a lot of production roles, your personal passion of that sport would definitely help. But if you are in a, let's say, in a marketing role, in a sales role, like sponsorship sales, like what I'm doing, you know, being a fan doesn't always play well. I remember there was a very, very interesting uh, conversation I had before with, I think, with Manchester United. When I was working for them, they were trying to find, I think it was a sales role they were recruiting in the region. And one of the things they put out is, we actually didn't want a fan, a Manchester United fan, to work for us in this role. Because if the person is presenting um, Manchester United in front of brand, if he's a fan, he might say something really bad to about Liverpool. But we don't want that. It's like... <laughs> It's it's always something you know that 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 catches my mind. I was like, okay, you you that that's that's pretty true, right? Like you don't want someone who 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 is always a fan first while doing the job. So that that's that's something I wanted to sort of um, call out here. And another thing that that I know is is very important to you is the role of of women in the industry. And and just talk generally, you know, globally, the sports industry is very male dominated. What challenges do you think women? in the Chinese sports industry specifically face? Um, it may be similar to, to, to women globally in the sports industry, but also what's specific to China, do you think? I, I actually give a lot of thought about this. If we look at the broader industries, not just the sport, uh, the challenges for, for women, for Chinese women in the professional field is probably the social perception. The social perception of women's role didn't doesn't quite catch up with the development of the women themselves. By by saying that, it means I think I've seen so many great women talent, like female talent, who are establishing their career in professional field. They're very they're very strong. They're independent and they're very smart. Um, but they face a lot of challenges as women in the Chinese society. They need to carry a lot of more other roles. Right at a certain age, you need to start the family. You need to become a mom. You need to become a, a good daughter. Um, but men, I think Chinese men tend not to have that many challenges from this. You know, their role is more like going out and make the money for the family, and that's it. But women have to make the money, uh, also take care of the children. So that's a that's a lot of challenges for professional women in China in China nowadays across all the industries. If you talk about women in China's sports industry, um, it's actually quite interesting uh, because I actually see a lot of more good female talent working in the China sports industry. I I can share more of a personal story here. Uh, you know, UFC is part of the Endeavor Group. Uh, Endeavor is a public company now, and for China of for China market, we. I always have this regular business development and sales meeting with the Endeavor China office uh, where all the directors have to sit together and talk about the business, the, the different brands we, we, we're working with. 
And in that room, we had about probably 15 people. Uh, they're all in the sales field. And 11 of them are women. So it's, it's quite interesting to observe. And on the, on the other side, uh, within UFC, our department is called a market, Global Marketing Partnerships Department. And in the, in the new business division, I, I think I'm the only, I was the only women in that sales department. And then with the activation, majority of them are, are, are women like the, um, the client servicing team, most of them are women. Um, so I feel like in China, actually, the sports industry has a lot more opportunities for women to work. And I, I think it's because the industry is pretty developing. It's not as established as other ones. And, you know, all the good roles are taken, taken by, by men. So I would actually encourage a lot of like, female talent to look into the sports industry. And the challenges are, I think, are the ways a lot of business are conducted. Like, can you actually cope with that? Because of the industry is quite a new, there are still a lot of, let's say, older tradition happening in the industry. The way the business is being conducted could be still a bit older fashioned, uh, especially when you start deal with the government. Um, there's a lot of uh, mail you have to deal with. You know, the way they socialize with each other, the way they talk about business could it be still old fashioned. And that's created a lot of challenges for, for women in that space. What are we talking about? We're talking about like drinking, KTV, like, like that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm sure things are, are, are changing, um, but I did hear a lot of similar stories. And I remember I actually have a very good friend in, in the industry. She used to work for... Um, car manufacturer but she was in the motorsports uh sort of event uh division and i remember she was telling me she heard a lot of stories about like taking the clients to the karaoke not not the normal karaoke taking the the, the male clients to the karaoke and she thought she could she could be very very objective about it you know doesn't really like badly impact her herself she she thought she could do that but when that actually happened what she did was she just went to the karaoke and booked the place and paid the money and then just left because she could she couldn't step into that room it was it was yeah. terrible and i think you know any women with that you know self independence and stuff it's, it's pretty hard for them to really embrace. I had this discussion with her because I thought I could handle, uh, because in general, like, I don't think there's a huge split between like women and men in the industry as long as you you know what you're doing, you, you're professional and you, you, you should be good. But when it came to that situation, a lot of women still couldn't really embrace it. So you just have to be really... Like find a way to to get involved in certain way to make the business happen, and I think I think it is changing. I mean, personally, I didn't encounter any of the situations in the past, and uh, and I hear I heard less and less stories, uh, and especially for a lot of brands who in China nowadays, it's it's the whole the whole landscape is also changing. Well, ho hopefully that that trend can continue. A lot of lot of food for thought there, Ting. And thank you so much for talking with us. It's been fascinating to to hear your insights, and um, feels like we've got a lot more to cover. So uh, perhaps we'll get you on again in the future. No problem. Thank you for inviting me.
Thank you to Zhang Ting. Uh, we caught up with her in Shanghai in lockdown. Mark, we might have a big guest coming up next week. Do you want to give a hint about who it might be? Yes, uh, it's someone we've been、uh, trying to get on the show for a while now. It looks like it is going to happen. Very, very excited.、Uh, it it、uh, it is a male, possibly、uh, possibly the most high-profile male athlete in the Chinese sports sphere at the moment.、Uh, in a in a non-Olympic realm, I would say. I I think he's a contender for for really do,、uh, and hopefully just at the start of his career. Uh, hopefully, there's a lot more to come. But uh, yeah, uh, tune in next week to, to to find out who that is. Definitely tune in next week, and thank you for listening this week. We will be back. <laughs>